are entering the Freedom Hut. The Buck is back, team, and I'm excited to be here, of course, to break down all the latest, like, shut down impeachment now. Hillary tortures Bernie, says nobody likes him. AOC wants billionaire power. Harwood goes to CNN. And, of course, Avenatti might be in El Chapo's former cell. That and more coming up. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, your mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small Make no mistake. America, great. you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. They used to impeach this president. You did not allow him to call any witnesses. He could not have a lawyer present during the House Intel Committee. This has been a partisan railroad job, and you're asking for fairness in Senate. You violated every norm of what we do. It took five years for Starr to look at Clinton. Uh, Mueller looked at uh, Trump for almost two years, and you took 48 days. So here's what I would say. The sooner this is over, the better for the country. We can get back to do the business of the American people uh, and do things that really matter to them. I've, I've seen, I've been very consistent. I supported Mueller. I trusted him to be fair. This has been a political hit job. This is political revenge. And what they're doing to the presidency is a danger to the institution itself. Welcome, everybody, to the Buck Sexton Show. Hopefully you recognize the voice after a few days of being out. A very, very successful and, and somewhat relaxing trip in California. I'll tell you about later on in the show. That's the most that I plan on being absent from the Freedom Hut until after Election Day. So that's it. It's just me and Producer Mark here in the hut. Ride or die, Producer Mark. We're not going anywhere, my friend. We, we, we ride together. We die together, bad boys for life. Oh, I'm taking a couple of days off here. Now. Okay, well, he's going to take a couple yeah. of days off. But I'm, but I'm back, baby, and I'm excited about it. Yeah, my man Lindsey Graham there laying down for you the truth of what's really going on with this impeachment sham. And it is a sham, as I have been telling you. Um, I, I, we've seen now the, the schedule. Uh, we know more or less how this is going to shake out. Uh, the president's not going to be removed from office. That's been understood from the beginning. Um, but Democrats are increasingly desperate. They know it's not really going to work. And what was this all about? There's fighting among Democrat candidates that's getting nastier and nastier as the Iowa caucuses approaches. The tension is rising and people are more willing than ever to lie, to misdirect. That's why you come here to the Freedom Hut, because we will crush all those commies we will slash and burn all the lies. That is what we do here. So um, we know that there's going to be a apparently truncated Senate trial that could change depending on how the witness portion of this goes. But over the next couple of days, you're going to have the Senate pr- uh, producing, Senate Democrats, Senate Republicans looking at the different uh, components of the trial and coming to a conclusion. And this just reminds me of what I've been saying all along, which is that I don't think that they should allow for there to be more witnesses to be called. I don't think that they should do the work that the House of Representatives, the Democrat House, was unwilling to do. To borrow from John Madden, because producer Mark is always teaching me about sports, and his video game circa 2004 on PlayStation, don't try to intercept it, just whap it down. Just whap it down. It's not my new favorite thing to say. Some of you will remember that. Others, you're like, what is Buck talking about? 
Uh, it means don't try to get cute. Don't try to make the Democrats marinate in the agony of their hypocrisy. Just shut this thing down. That's what should be done here. Uh, that it should be dismissed with with prejudice. And that is also what is said in the trial memorandum. Uh, I read the trial memorandum. It's about 110 pages. It's it's worth at least reading the executive summary if you get a minute. Well, actually, no, I'll tell you about it. You don't have to read it. That's why I'm here. Um, but then the rest of it goes into some greater detail. Here are the, the top lines on it. Here, here's the most important stuff, because this is finally the president getting people on his side to present their case formally in a, in a written document about, I guess all documents are written in some way, right? But about how this whole thing is absurd. It's wrong. It's unethical. It's a desperation play by very desperate Democrats. And here's one line from it that I particularly liked. The articles of impeachment, quote, should be rejected and the president should immediately be acquitted, according to his trial memorandum, released now by the White House. He's got his legal team. He's got people that have finally come together to make the argument. And this is what I've been saying. No, no. The Democrats want this to be a circus. A circus is better for them, even if it doesn't work out in the end with the president being removed. They know that won't happen. But they also don't want people to pay too close attention to the arguments that Democrats are going to be making against each other right now. You see, one of the problems they have is that anyone, and you see this, and we'll get into this in more detail, who tries to take down Biden as the front runner is going to make arguments that, by their very nature, tie into the arguments Trump will make about Biden's corruption, for example, about Biden being too old, out of touch, too white, too male, too whatever. These are things that Trump will be saying down the line. So there's that risk. Democrats would rather have this just fought out among primary voters and in the Democrat friendly media. They don't want too many people paying attention to the nastiness among these candidates on the left. They also don't want people to look at what's really going on in this country. Oh, the war with Iran that didn't happen. The genocide of the Kurds that didn't happen. The collapse of the economy that didn't happen. The trade war with China that we are winning, by the way. Where is it exactly that Trump is such a massive failure? I mean, a point of failure. Hmm. They don't really have much, do they? And if they didn't have the ability, if the media, the Democrats, one and the same, if they couldn't fill the airwaves with all of these stories about the impeachment and how Trump is so evil and must be removed and fighting out about all this detail, treating this like a, a criminal leading, legal proceeding when it suits them, and then abandoning any pretense of due process. Uh, that's what the Democrats do the second that it won't work out in their favor. Anyone who is fair-minded looks at this and understands exactly what it is. This has been a partisan hit job from day one. Lindsey Graham is correct. The article's should be rejected. The president should be immediately acquitted. Um, the plan, by the way, is Senate trial uh, to start at, at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern Tuesday. McConnell wants to give each side 24 hours to make their case over the course of a couple of days. Democrats, uh, well, this could end before Trump even gives the State of the Union address. 
and I certainly hope that it does. It's going to be quite a State of the Union address, by the way. It will be will be entertaining. That much I, I can assure you. Um, but there are some very important parts of this trial memorandum about the impeachment that I wanted to spend some time with you on, and then we'll move on to AOC is a Marxist, a full-on Marxist. Okay, this is now, we're now past the, oh, we're going to be Sweden. We're not going to be Sweden. You got Democrats now that really do want this place to be much closer in structure to Venezuela. They just think that it's going to work out differently this time. As well as the Democrat infighting, I'll give you my thoughts on the rally of Second Amendment patriots at the Virginia State House yesterday. We got a lot of stuff to get into today, but just... Here, here, if you will, is, is I thought the most important. If you're looking for a consolidation of the case that this whole impeachment is absurd and really quite damaging to the country, and the Democrats who are involved in this are involved in something that is shameful. Not only are they incorrect, it is shameful what they are doing. Here's what is said in this defense of Trump that has finally been released. After focus group testing charges, House Democrats settled on two flimsy articles of impeachment that allege no crime or violation of law whatsoever, much less high crimes and misdemeanors as required by the Constitution. They do not remotely approach the constitutional threshold for removing a president from office. The diluted standard asserted here would permanently weaken the presidency and forever alter the balance among the branches of government in a matter that offends the constitutional design established by the founders. House Democrats jettisoned all precedent and principle because their impeachment inquisition was never really about discovering the truth or conducting a fair investigation. Instead, House Democrats were determined from the outset to find some way, any way, to corrupt the extraordinary power of impeachment for use as a political tool to overturn the result of the 2016 election and to interfere in the 2020 election. All of this is a dangerous perversion of the Constitution that the Senate should swiftly and roundly condemn. End quote. Yep. Pretty much says it all, doesn't it? I mean, there's more, and we'll get into a bit more of it. Um... But let's just start with with this one. House, uh, rather, the abuse of power is a made-up standard. This is not a standard for removal from office. That they made this a, a standard of impeachment just goes to show you that they don't care what the precedents are, what the rules are, what any sense of fairness would mandate here. They just want to do it their way. They want a result. The process here is meaningless to them unless the process gives them the conclusion that they seek in all of this. Abuse of power is a made-up standard. Uh, There are some headings in the memorandum that give you a good overview of what the defense here uh, here is of the president. And I want you to be familiar with this, team. I want you to know about this because the media is going overtime here. I mean, they know this is their last chance in their minds to at least turn this impeachment into some kind of political win for the Democrats and their hopes to gain uh, the presidency in 2020. The rest of us look at this and say, what a joke this is. The media is saying, come on, everybody, it's all hands on deck, have to do everything we can against Trump for the Democrats. That's the plan. 
ultimately they recognize the likelihood of Donald Trump winning four more years in office, they find this untenable. I don't know what happens. They've already been emotionally broken. Now they're emotionally broken and Trump would be rubbing salt in their emotional wounds for four more years. I don't know what happens to them if they have to deal with this president again for another term. They've already lost their sense of rationality, of decency, of normalcy. I, I don't know what else they have left to give or to lose. And they know that too. So there's a desperation. That's an important word to keep in mind here. Desperation to make a case that is absurd on its face. Here is one of those subheadings in the memorandum. House Democrats concocted the theory that the president can be impeached for taking permissible actions if he does them for what they believe to be the wrong reasons. This would also expand the impeachment power beyond constitutional bounds. It would allow a hostile house to attack almost any presidential action by challenging a president's subjective motives. This has been a feature of hashtag resistance opposition to President Trump for his entire time in office. If Trump does something, it's illegitimate because they can see into Trump's heart and find illegitimate motive. Even if he has the power, even if as a function of his office, he's allowed to do something. When Trump does it, it's wrong. This is kind of the opposite of Nixon. You know, if the president does it, it's not illegal, right? Uh, this is now President Trump who is breaking the law by doing things that another president would be allowed to do. But you see, he's Trump. There are federal judges, Obama appointees, of course, who have taken the same approach. Well, because the president said something that leftists didn't like during this was a real judicial opinion, folks. This was a real uh, a real federal judge writing this down and making a determination using his power to this end because Trump said things during the campaign that showed a bias against certain people. According to this judge, he was not allowed to institute a ban on people traveling from seven countries under certain conditions for a certain period of time even though that is an executive, that is a presidential prerogative. But you see, he's Trump. Same thing applies here. They've created a make-believe standard where, well, even if he's allowed to have the conversation with Zelensky about Ukraine that he did, because it's Trump, we know it's illicit. It's Trump derangement syndrome. That's what is undergirding. That is the foundation, the underlying architecture of impeachment against this president is Trump derangement syndrome. The defense in this memorandum makes it clear, and the people that are still attacking the president are getting sillier and sillier, and as I said, more desperate. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. The question of witnesses uh, in any trial, in any trial, all relevant witnesses uh, must be heard, whether if, if you're accused of robbing a bank, uh, te testimony that I saw him rob the bank or he was somewhere else, he couldn't have robbed the bank, is admissible. It's not negotiable whether you have witnesses. And this whole controversy about whether there should be witnesses is, just, is really a question of, does the Senate want to have a fair trial or, do they, or are they part of the cover-up of the president? Any Republican senator who says there should be no witnesses or even that witnesses should be negotiated is part of the cover-up. So you're saying no way would Hunter Biden ever be called to testify? 
Well, I'm saying that Hunter Biden has no knowledge of the accusations against the president. So, wait, I'm sorry. I thought Jerry Nadler there, you know, he wants the witnesses, but I mean, not not witnesses that he doesn't want. You got to have witnesses. You see, that would be a principle. By the way, a principle Democrats already abandoned in the House when they had the votes, when they had the authority to make this process up as they went along. No, no, forget forget about calling certain witnesses, right? Forget about adjudicating that through the court system. Just just move the thing through as fast as you can. Just just ram it through. That was the approach. Why didn't they ask for these, the witnesses that Democrats think are important for the Senate to hear from, why didn't the House try to push that issue? Ah, because they had to create impeachment. They had to get it across the goal line and then try to add to it. Oh, but Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden is irrelevant. This goes to the heart of the matter in many ways. And this is now going to be a moment where I tell you, I've been telling you this the whole time. The defense that many Republicans were trying to use of this president. Was there a quid pro quo? Was it? They, they have skipped over a critical fact here, and that is there is nothing wrong with the president asking a foreign counterpart to look into corruption that, by the way, would happen to touch upon real allegations against the Biden family. Sorry, they have no immunity. There's no special Biden clause in federal law. It's just too darn bad. That is the ground that Republicans should have been defending President Trump on from the beginning. It's what I've been saying from the beginning. Why do we concede that they're, oh, yeah, it was, well, he could never have asked about Hunter Biden, you know, in, in a quid pro quo way. He could have never asked about Joe Biden and what was going on there. And that was, you know, that was something that was a problem. No, no, he must ask those questions. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been, the whole issue has been a sham. It shouldn't have gotten this far. The House acted improperly in passing it on to the Senate. Why is your party dragging this thing out? Why is this happening? Why go through all this, uh, this business about witnesses? Do we really need more witnesses? It's going to add months to this thing. We should stop this. This bogus inflated uh, case. And get on with business of it's governance. Will these people just get down to business and leave this impeachment thing alone? It's going to be an enormous distraction. Uh, to the White House and all kinds of issues that the Congress ought to be considering. There's a long line of, of the people's business that seems to have been put aside and apparently is going to be put aside for weeks, if not months now. Oh, wow. So many voices in the media speaking out against what the House did and against witnesses and this is a distraction. Oh, that's right. Those were some of the biggest voices in the media. Bunch of leftist Democrats, of course. Bunch of smug libs. Oh, but they were referring to all these different processes when a Democrat, Bill Clinton, was going through an impeachment. Oh, okay. And now some of those same voices, by the way, are very much involved in this today. And it's just completely a question for them of whose ox is being gored. You know, this is not a what's good for the goose is good for the gander situation, right? This is not a, a standard that is applicable to both sides. There's a Democrat standard and a Republican standard. And this is why the people that always claim that Trump supporters use whataboutism, whataboutism is destroying this country right now insofar as we have to always say, what about the same standard being applied? 
You know, it's it's one thing to bring up something that's a non sequitur distraction. Of course, that's a logical fallacy. If I'm talking about what's going on with this impeachment and someone else says, well, hold on a second. You know, what, what about what about what Barack Obama did in Libya? It's like, well, that's not has nothing to do with anything right now. But if we're talking about an impeachment of a president and what the process should be and what is fair for that president, what is due process in a political process, which impeachment inherently is. You would think that it would be an applicable standard of both sides. Right? The law at its core is not really law. It's not moral order if it is not applicable, irrespective of who it affects and what the politics of the situation may be. Right? You establish things that are true or are not true. You know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. It's not thou shalt not kill unless, you know, we think that you're doing some really good policy work and then maybe we'll let it slide. People say, oh, Buck, but what about, what about when you kill someone in self-defense? Right, that's a universally applicable standard. If you kill somebody in self-defense, no matter who you are, what, what political background you have, what race, creed, or color, any of those things, we all as human beings have a right to self-defense. And these are universal standards. This is very simple stuff. And I know it almost feels like a waste of time to go through it, but Democrats abandon this as though it's nothing. They make the standard up as they go along. Oh, well, that's not like that. They're the party of crybaby, whiny children. You know, if, if you tell kids, and I don't have kids, so I have, to, I have to do this from the perspective of, you know, seeing other people dealing with their kids. And I also did a little babysitting for my siblings growing up. And if you tell kids, okay... You know, if you want, you know, if you also want to play with, you know, Bobby's bicycle or what a tricycle, let's say, it sounds more like a kid thing. You know, if he has to share his toy with you, you have to share your toys with him. Democrats are the party of no. He shares his toy. I don't have to share my toys. No applicable standard to both sides. No principle. There's a principle involved there. They don't they don't have principles. They have a lust for power. That's it. And that's what has been so obvious, so clear in this impeachment proceeding. They just change the rules as they go. Does anyone really think what the House did was intended to be fair to the president? No, no, no counsel for the president, no representation of the president. The Democrats get to bring whatever witnesses they want. The Democrats get to just have this, this, these hearings where they put forward a bunch of, of deep state Democrat crybabies. Oh, Trump was violating the policy. He sets the policy. Oh, but I'm an expert on Ukraine. Great. <sighs> this is really the buck defense that has now come to the forefront, though, in this impeachment fiasco. This is from the memorandum. House Democrats' charges rest on the false premise that there could have been no legitimate purpose to ask President Zelensky about Ukrainian involvement in the 2016 election and the Biden-Burisma affair. It was entirely appropriate for President Trump to ask about possible Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election. It would have been appropriate for President uh, Trump to ask President Zelensky about the Biden-Burisma affair. Um, the only that the only reason for raising them would have been to obtain an improper personal political benefit is obviously false. Even if the president president had raised those issues, there were legitimate reasons to do so. Bam. Who's been saying this all along? 
Everyone needs to stop with the, oh, but he wasn't really, and he was just general corruption. No. Hey, did the Bidens do some sketchy stuff? Find out for me. You know, ask your guy. Let me know. What, he's not allowed to ask that? What if the Bidens did do some sketchy stuff? Ah, this is where the media apparatus leaps in. Discredited, debunked, conspiracy theory. Says who? How? I don't know. They just jump right to it, though. The propaganda effect. Keep repeating it. Debunked, discredited, conspiracy. Debunked, discredited, conspiracy. Hunter Biden, as is noted in this defense of Trump, had no qualifications whatsoever. In fact, he's a crackhead who impregnates strippers in the back room of sketchy D.C. striptease establishments. That's that's just fact. Okay, I mean, kicked out of the military for doing crack, kept doing crack, got all kinds of problems. Look, I mean, the guy's a sad case. Let's be honest. I mean, he's got a lot of problems. I don't don't mean to be mean, but, you know, the future of the republic is being called into question here if Trump gets to win re-election and Hunter Biden somehow in the center of this. So we got to deal with reality. Hunter Biden has no qualifications whatsoever for the seat that he sits on. He is compensated, as the report points out, more richly in that role than board members at Fortune 100 energy giants like ConocoPhillips. So serious energy companies that are in the top 100 most valuable companies in the world are not paying board members $80,000 a month. Nope. That's not what happens. So why is Hunter Biden getting paid that much money? Why? Okay, questions. Why is he on the board at all? We know the answer is because of who his dad was and the, at least the appearance of invincibility from corruption investigation at Burisma because of who his dad was. Okay, that's one. And then two, why is he making so much money? Because they knew it was shady. They knew it was shady. You know, this is, this is where we are, my friends. This is absurd. But these are the defenses that need to finally be raised. I've been saying, I'm so happy that these lawyers who have gathered, who have finally circled the wagons necessarily in defense of Trump um, as he's being ambushed by these insane Democrats. I'm so glad to see that they understand what the real defense is here, that there's no special invincibility or invulnerability for the Bidens just because Biden is leading in the polls now for the Democrats, which tells you all you have to know about this Democrat party. It's pathetic. It's the best they can do. They know this. This is the best they can put forward. Joe Biden, not even sure what state he's in some of the time. The guy's too old and too dumb. But this is the best we've got. Yeah, it's Joe Biden. People always, they, they love to, oh, I love to hear people. They put they put Trump down for his businesses that failed here. And first of all, I know tons of, ask any entrepreneur, either personally or how many other entrepreneurs he or she knows, who ended up being really successful, how many failed ventures they had first. Are they losers? Because... They took a long shot and it didn't work the first time out. Are they idiots? You know, because Trump has had failed businesses here and there. See, well, somehow he was a part of the most successful reality, ran really effectively, was the centerpiece of the most successful reality TV show of, I think, his generation. Maybe American Idol in its early days is more successful. Somehow his name is on buildings all over the world. His brand obviously has a value. I mean, the market has spoken. I mean, Trump is a very, very wealthy guy. Yeah, he inherited money, but he also did a lot with the money he inherited. I know plenty of rich kid wastrels hanging out all over New York City. They know, they, they're, not, they're not Trump, okay? So uh, J- Joe Biden is what they're offering us? Where's the, where's the record of success for Biden? Now people are starting to look at what other Bidens got rich, by the way. 
what other members of the Biden family all of a sudden through connection and through the assumption of access became very wealthy people while Joe was just doing his best for America. Please, like we're we're all supposed to be a bunch of complete and utter buffoons. That's what they're assuming here. This is what the Democrats offer up to you, that you cannot use your your powers of deduction here. You cannot actually sit and think about this. It's disturbing, my friends. It's disturbing to say the least. Um, but the truth is the case that's being made against the president all rests on false assumptions, misdirections, faulty premises. The eradication of fairness is central to this effort. And that is what they are doing. There's no due process. There's no effort to make this seem like it's anything really other than what it is if you're paying attention the last gasp of the hashtag resistance, weaponizing the bureaucracy, weaponizing the process against the president of the United States in an election year. Why are they so terrified of voting? Because what would it mean to all the people who have told us that Trump was basically Hitler, which, as you know, a lot of very prominent Democrats and uh, pundits and writers have been saying for quite some time. What would it mean if, if they've been telling us that he's the worst person in the world? And then when it comes time for voting, the American people step forward and say, actually, a majority of us, as seen through the Electoral College, think the president has done a really good job. Eight years of Trump. That's what you get. Establishment. That's what you get. Swamp, deep state, hashtag resistance. They can't handle it. They are in a panic. This is not brilliant strategy. This is the kitchen sink strategy. Pelosi and Schiff and Schumer and Nadler, they're just, they're flailing now. They're just someone who's just trying to keep throwing whatever they can at Trump, anything that they can come up with. This isn't going to work, so what are they doing? They're just hoping that something catches, which is why I go back to my initial premise. Cocaine Mitch should just whap it down. End this farce, put it to bed. Let's see the Democrats try to mount a real campaign in the public to try and defeat this president at the ballot box. That's what needs to happen if they're serious about the, about the republic that they claim so much to care about. We know what they care about. They care about power. They do not care about what they have to do in order to get there. That's what impeachment's really, ha- really all about. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. There's been some discussion about lately for, I'll just say, various reasons. <laughs> a Minnesota euphemism is about a woman dealing with them. I think a lot of people think, oh, look at him. Uh, can a woman beat him? I first point out the facts that Nancy Pelosi does it every single day. Uh, the second is that... Um, you don't have to be the tallest person in the room. Uh, you don't have to be uh, the skinniest person in the room. We need to start thinking about these women that have been incredible, that have won races in really hard districts and brought people with them. Oh, yeah. Democrats with the woman card all of a sudden here. they got to run with something. Not a diverse field. We know that. No, no racial diversity of the Democrat candidates left. Oops. For people who preach about this constantly, Democrats certainly seem to fall short when it really matters, huh? 
And now we have Democrats who are saying, well, it's all about we have to elect a woman because the best candidates that they have right now, according to the New York Times, who endorsed the editorial board there endorsed. No, no, editorial board endorsements matter insofar as it gives other people, the media, something to point to and either say yay or nay. That doesn't doesn't move the needle. Nobody really cares, I think. Um, but they endorsed uh, in my this happened while I was still out. Klobuchar and Warren, a double endorsement, which isn't that really no endorsement at all. If neither candidate is good enough for you to say this is the candidate, maybe just don't endorse anybody. But to endorse both of them seems to be an admission of sorts that they don't have one candidate who's good enough to endorse. And yet they skip over Bernie and Biden. Because, well, Biden is too old and really just not up for it. Biden's just not not somebody that we really want to be making any important decisions. And who knows what Biden even really stands for? I mean, he's just a Democrat who will say whatever Democrats tell him to say at any point in time. I mean, he's, he's almost like a puppet Democrat. He just does what the apparatus wants him to do has no area where he breaks from the party consensus, is not a maverick on anything. Remember, if you're a Republican and you, you trash your own party, you're a maverick. If you're a Democrat and you break with the Democrat Party in any way, you're a traitor. They're very clear on that. Those talk, talk about rules that are different depending on who you are. But they won't say that or the New York Times won't endorse Biden, won't endorse Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, I think it's understandable why. I mean, the Democrats now are going to have a very tough time going forward, especially if Bernie Sanders becomes their nominee, that their party is not a socialist party. Bernie Sanders is advocating for socialist policies flat and calls himself a socialist. The Democratic Party platform is very close to socialism on most of these issues and is an outright socialist advocacy on others. So where exactly is it written that we can't say the Democrats are now socialists? I, I need to understand this. They are socialists. They're American socialists, a little different, not Venezuelan, not Swedish, you know, something else. We got our own version of it here. But all socialism is subject to time and place differences, subject to the way it is implemented in one particular nationality or another in one period or another. It's never exactly the same. Even if you're talking about hardcore communism, is North Korea the same as the Soviet Union? No, very different in many important ways. But similar enough in certain ways, you can call both systems socialist. Democrats are a socialist party, and there are some who are smart enough now to realize the party has been hijacked. They are smart enough to understand the implications of this at the ballot box. You see, they want power. They want power so that they can um, eradicate a lot of cultural norms that are considered more traditional. They want power so they can have... Uh, Planned Parenthood and a woman's right to choose, as they say, to be an unrestricted right that is untouchable, that can never be changed. They want the federal government to be more involved in every aspect of your life than ever before. They want climate change to become a, an enforced secular religion of sorts. They want you to pay for other people's stuff. They want anyone from anywhere in the world who comes here to be able to stay here and you have to pay for whatever they need. That's the party the Democratic Party has become. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're providing unprecedented support 
to ethanol support like they've never had before. Yet, the radical left in Washington wants to demolish these gains, and they, frankly, want to destroy your way of life. They are not for the farmer. They are not for our military. They are not for secure borders. They want open borders. They want sanctuary cities. Is that too strong? Is that too much, what President Trump says there? The Democratic Party, the radical left, is that really what they've become? Well, you know, I think the answer is, of course, yes. But let me make the case to you, because you will receive a tremendous amount of, of pushback, of outrage. How dare, how dare, how dare you, sir? Chill, Greta, chill, as Trump says. Uh, if you were to suggest the Democratic Party has become a socialist party. And yet, when you line it up and you look at what they say, you look at their beliefs and what they suggest should happen in this country, the kind of, kind of power that they want to have, you'd have to ask yourself, well, hold on a second. How exactly are they different from socialists? President Trump says that they want to destroy many aspects of your way of life. If you view economic systems as inextricably linked with individual freedom and choice, as I do, then the way the Democrats approach controlling more and more of our economic system so that they can engage in endless social engineering, so that they can dictate every little aspect of your life in whatever way that they can, my friends, that is a threat to your freedom. It's not an overstatement to say that. It's not an overstatement to say that they are using the force of law. So much of what they get away with rhetorically, the Bernie Sanders, the Elizabeth Warrens, is they suggest that this is all just going to happen because people will understand these are good ideas once they pass these laws and then everything will be fine. But no, if, if you don't want to go along with their plans... Elizabeth Warren, who has a plan for everything. I think Elizabeth Warren has a five-year plan for everything. Um, if they suggest these things, though, and, and then they make them laws, and then you say, I don't want to, you will not comply, then they will send, eventually, uh, men with guns who work for the state to take away your property and perhaps your freedom. That's how this works. That's what laws are. You know, If you're serious about laws, not like immigration law, which Democrats think somehow is not the law, and we saw... And we'll get into the Second Amendment rally in Virginia yesterday. People understand that there is a real threat to freedom now from socialists in America. This is a socialism versus freedom election in 2020. Make no mistake about it. And if you think if you think that that's too much, oh, no, Buck, it's not true. Really? Who is the single most beloved by the media and by the by the left and by most of the Democratic Party. He's the single most beloved figure in elected office in the Democratic Party today. I would argue it's not Nancy Pelosi. The one that they think is the future of the party. I mean, obviously, Nancy Pelosi is not the future of the party, not to. But, you know, I don't think anyone believes that. Who is the future of the Democratic Party? Oh, well, we know that there are a few possible answers here, but there's one answer that really comes to mind. AOC. Now, she had an interesting discussion over the weekend. Ocasio-Cortez, 
someone who has not even a a working knowledge of economics um, has no idea or I, I don't know if she's too stupid to know or doesn't care that she does not know how the American economy works and why it is so good, why it has been such a powerful force for raising standards of living across the board. Yes, even poor people in America today are better off than poor people were 50 years ago. It's not even close. But she doesn't seem to, she either doesn't understand or doesn't care that she doesn't know um, and, and has no real, no real sense of what works and what doesn't. Here's her view of politics in America today. You have to hear this to believe it. Please play 15. In what you said earlier, too, I wanted to go back um, to what you said about our left party. We don't have a left party mm. in the United States. Mm. The Democratic Party is not a left party. Mm. Um, the Democratic Party is a center or center conservative party. Mm. We do not advocate for, we do not, we can't even get a floor vote on Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. Not even a floor vote that gets voted down. Mm -hmm. We can't even get a vote on it. Mm -hmm. So this is not a left party. Mm -hmm. There are left members inside the Democratic Party mm -hmm. that are working to try to make that shift happen. Mm -hmm. She's telling you explicitly She's saying there are leftists in the Democratic Party. Yeah, there are socialists in the Democratic Party. But that, so that's one revelation that I think is important for us all to hear. These are socialists, folks. There's a word for the left in the context of the policies we're talking about. These are socialists. And they can try to tell you that they're going to be socialists along the lines of what you see in Europe. But the reality is that everybody in Europe in those countries that we love. First of all, the reality in places like Sweden and Denmark is that there's a lot of free market capitalism at work and that true socialism was tried much or, or much something much closer to true socialism in Sweden. And then when they basically started running out of money and realized the economy was stagnating, they said, okay, well, let's try the capitalist thing for a while. They just have a massive welfare state, but everybody pays into that welfare state. Everybody, middle class, lower class, everybody. That tax, 25%, I think. In, uh, in Sweden, which is highly, uh, obviously a, high, a regressive tax, right? It goes after anyone who buys anything. And so then you have to ask yourself, well, hold on a second. We keep getting told that the rich will pay, that the rich people, it's all their fault. You see, they'll fund all this stuff. That's Marxist. Now, now we're getting into class warfare. Now we're getting into the evolution that Marx believed would occur from capitalism into socialism. And there were arguments among the Marxists in the early days about whether or not that was the proper path or whether the revolutionary dictatorship, that's the word they used to use, the dictatorship of the proletariat, of the working class. Yes, that's, that's what needs to happen. A dictatorship made up of a collective commune of people. Ah. <sighs> There were arguments as to whether or not they should even go through the stage of capitalism. See, but the, the, the helpful thing for socialists when they try to transition from capitalism is capitalism accumulates wealth and creates prosperity, right? People, there's more stuff. So you want to have that period of more stuff before the socialists, the statists, the authoritarians come in and start just contracting and siphoning and contracting and siphoning. California, for example, very rich place takes a long time to ruin it. Democrats are ruining it. I was just out there. I'll tell you some of my observations about that later. They're ruining it. 
Socialists are ruining California. That's what's happening here. But she says, we don't have a we don't have a left party. We have a centrist Democrat party or center conservative. I mean, from her perspective, you have to think, um, well, maybe that's true because she's so far left that nothing would be considered left to her except for going you know, full Che Guevara. I, I don't know. Um, it's tough to understand really where she thinks she's going to take this country other than down a pathway of misery, collectivism, and despair. Right? Those things go, collectivism equals misery and despair. These are things that always go together. Um, but then there was a moment when the mask slipped. There was a moment when you saw what's really at the heart of this. There are some things that I repeat to you frequently on this show, things like, oh, Democrats don't care about principle per se. Democrats don't really, it doesn't really bother them what they do to the process, what they do to fair play, good faith, and what the long-term ramifications of the republic may be from their actions. That doesn't really bother them. What bothers them is the lack of power. They want power. They perhaps have a psychological and emotional attachment to it. I would even argue perhaps an obsession with it. That's what drives so much of their uh, desire on a policy level and just in general, the discourse, the way that they present their arguments to the public. AOC, while she's engaged in a, a Marxist class warfare demonization of rich people, um, AOC told you exactly what motivates her, exactly what she thinks needs to happen here. Play 13. To be ethical, if you're a billionaire today, the thing that you need to do is give up control mm. and power. So I don't want your money as much as we want your power. Mm. The people, not me, that's going to get cut and clipped. We want your power. Yeah, it is going to get cut and clipped because who says that? What does that mean? We want your We the people want your power. What people does AOC really think she represents? Oh, a congressional district here in New York full of leftists who don't know anything? Great. No, she means much more than just that. We want your power. You also have to wonder, does, does Jeff Bezos, who owns the Washington Post, does he have to give up his power? Does Mike Bloomberg, who is making more waves in this Democratic primary than many people thought, does he have to give up his power? Who are these mythical billionaires that get to control everything and have no accountability whatsoever and can just enforce their whim, their, their whims on the American people. I mean, Ross Perot ran for president. How did that go? Oh, he was a Republican, though. So he's a bad guy. I'm sorry. He was an independent or whatever we call him, a kind of a libertarian. He was a Ross Perot. So she wants their power. It's also fascinating. Do we, Producer Mark, do we have the clip where she talks about how making, making widgets? Did we get that one? No. Okay. She goes on in this. She's sitting there with uh, Tanessi Coates. And uh, she, she, he, he says to her, it's a, it's a reasonable question, you know, well, don't billionaires make a lot of widgets and they get to, and she says, no, because they pay slave level wages, she says, uh, to people today in order to become billionaires. So she takes the very Marxist proposition that capitalism is exploitation and that this is a form of theft. And that it's not really that anyone who has become a billionaire has engaged in an, an exploitation that is inherently immoral. 
I mean, as I sit here and I've got an iPhone on my desk and I think about all the things I've ordered from Amazon that are going to be waiting for me at home today that saved me maybe an hour at the store. I mean, how many hours of my life have I gotten back? How much more enjoyment and how much more ease of communication have I had because of my iPhone, because of Amazon, because of these different things that have made billionaires of people? Microsoft, I've got an IBM, in, right? This is an IBM in front of me. I know that's not Microsoft, but it runs on Windows, so. Don't they get rewarded for those things? Shouldn't they be rewarded for those things? No, it's theft. It's theft. Um, people who, oh, and she, she also suggests that billionaires just sit on their couches while other people work really hard. Look, I've got to tell you something. Um, I've come across a lot of low-level employees in the government and the private sector who are really lazy. It's a real thing. People don't do a good job. People who mess around at work all day. People don't really care. It's a real thing. There are also people who work really hard, right? You know, you know what we have to try to, to try to motivate people to be those people who, even at the low end of the wage scale, are working very hard? We have wages. And you hope that the system, the market, will reward people more for diligent work over time. Now, there are pressures on this. It's not perfect. But what's the, what's the alternative? The alternative is, is AOC, think there needs to be a redistribution, of, a redistribution of wealth. Look, some companies recognize that uh, giving their employees a little bit more, a little bit extra is good business for them, keeps them, retains them, keeps a good workforce. Delta Airlines had a great year last year, and I think now they're giving out uh, over a billion-dollar dividend, and people are going to get who are employees for Delta, not including senior executives and people who are higher up the chain. Uh, they're going to get, I think, 16% of their salary in a lump sum. Producer Mark, are we getting that? Not that I'm aware of. That sounds like fun, though. I think we would both, you'd take me to a Rangers game if we got a 16% lump sum of the salary. That'd be nice. Yeah, would I? Okay, an Islanders game. Close enough. Why would I go to an Islanders game? It's disgusting. Because it's cheaper. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's the, uh, the other option. Now you're definitely going to take an Islanders game. Forget the Rangers for you. Uh, so AOC is effectively advocating for socialism based on the Marxist principle of capitalist exploitation of the laboring class. It's like we've learned nothing. It's like society hasn't gone through. We haven't run this experiment over and over again in places all over the world. Do you want know-nothing authoritarian idiots like AOC to determine who gets what money and when and what they do and what's enough and how much taxation they get and all, you know. All these different components are left to them. The central planners, they get to be the ones who devise the plan. And anything that goes with the plan is good. Anything that goes against the plan is bad. Or do we want individuals pursuing their own destinies, using their talents, and leveraging whatever assets they have as best they can to be as productive as they can and be rewarded in the marketplace? This is the choice, my friends. This is the choice of 2020. This is the choice of the direction of this country. Even if AOC were to win, if AOC were to become president tomorrow, which I know she can't for a whole bunch of reasons, we don't have to like, if AOC were president tomorrow and she were president for the next 10 years and the country would be in bad shape, but it would, it'll take a long time. It'll take a long time to, to because of all the accumulation of, of intellectual and financial capital in this country, of all the social cohesion, which is constantly being frayed these days, to really destroy this place. But I, I promise you socialism can do it. History tells us beyond any doubt socialism can do it. And AOC is advocating for that. The Democratic Party is advocating for socialist policies. It's just a question of whether it's incremental or revolutionary. Is it step by step? Is it the way that Biden and Hillary want to take you there? Or is it as overnight as they can make it? It will never really be overnight. But is it leaps towards socialism? That's what AOC and Sanders and Warren want to do. 
But it's all taking us to the same place, my friends. Socialism. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I always said, you know, I'm a communist. I'm ready to start tearing bricks up and start fighting. I'm not. I'm no, no cop, bro. I'm, I'll straight up, I'll straight up get arms. I want to swing on a shoot and go train. I'm ready for revolution, bro. Guillotine the rich. So, do we just seize? Do we just dissolve the, the Senate, House of Representatives, branch, and have somebody like Bernie Sanders and a cabinet of people make all the decisions for the climate? I mean, I'm serious. Yeah. What will help is when we send all the Republicans to the re-education. <laughs> you imagine Mitch McConnell? Oh God, he wouldn't survive. Lindsey Graham. Education. I like realize they're founded as re-education. Right. The first gulag that was open, have you heard about the Bellamore Canal? It came from America to work in the Bellamore Canal for the Soviet project, for the communist project. There's another video from Project Veritas of another Bernie Sanders field organizer speaking in really stark Marxist terms, communist terms, actually. Guillotine the rich. Now, look, I know it's off, you know, he's off the, he thinks he's off the clock and he's probably having a conversation with someone. He's letting some things fly. But who, who says that? Guillotine the rich. I mean, that's, you know, that's chop the heads off of rich people. I mean, I know he, he thinks he's being, you know, rhetorically edgy or something. But he's also speaking with fondness and laughing about sending Republicans to the gulag. This is somebody who's working for the Bernie Sanders campaign. Somebody who's politically active in this country. What exactly are we supposed to take? And another one different than the one from before. Can you imagine for a moment if Trump had anyone working for his campaign who was sitting around laughing about rounding up Bernie Sanders supporters and putting them in camps? I don't think so. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, thousands of gun rights activists, white nationalists, militia groups all swarming the Virginia state capitol. There are a lot of people nervous about what's going to happen. Authorities in Richmond are on high alert. It could be a tense day. Such polarization, what may happen in Virginia. Several hate groups, supposedly some white nationalists. White nationalists. White nationalists. White nationalists. White nationalist groups. White supremacists. White supremacists. White supremacists. White extremists. This entire rally stands in, in opposition to the meaning of this day. Virginia on the edge. How concerned are you that there might be some people in this crowd that may want to get violent? There's certainly a lot of concern here. Raising fears of a dangerous confrontation. It could be violence and there is real concern there about what the intention is behind it. Zero violence. Not a mostly peaceful assembly of tens of thousands of American patriots, many of whom open carrying firearms um, in order to show the exercise of their Second Amendment rights that the Virginia state legislature is now trying to unconstitutionally infringe on. No violence. None. No, no even arrests that I'm aware of. I mean, my understanding is that afterwards, many of the people in attendance try to help make sure they cleaned up. This is why when I tell you that the left is full of, of self-indulgent crybabies, and that really is an emotion-first political ideology, you see it play out that way time and time again. Right? I mean, I came into political analysis. At, you know, I left the CIA 
the Bilderbergs, the Illuminati. I left the CIA and all of a sudden I uh, found myself in media, but it was right at the time of the, the ascendancy of the Tea Party. I mean, right after the midterm election, the Tea Party had swept into power, but the Tea Party was a major force in American politics. And people at Tea Party rallies were overwhelmingly, almost entirely, almost without exception, kind, respectful of laws, assembling in large numbers. And they weren't they weren't assaulting people. They weren't kicking in the windows of stores. They weren't, you know, saying that Starbucks is oppressive. I want my latte, but then I want to kick in the door. I mean, that's that's what leftists do. That's what leftists did when they lit a limousine on fire on Trump's inauguration day in downtown Washington, D.C. The leftist culture of protest involves people saying horrifically nasty things, too. Even things like the Women's March and the March for Science. But the Women's March was just an anti-Trump march. People have finally realized that, but we, should have, we knew that all along. It was just women who don't like Trump marching and saying, we're women, we don't like Trump and other stuff. I mean, that was it. That was all. Oh, no, it was about something. No, of course not. It was classic Alinskyite mobilization, though, right? Use people's identity affinity and then just get a big group of them together with a whole bunch of different causes, but then you've mobilized them for something and you can use them for what you want, which was anti-Trumpism. And that's what was really going on there. And then you have this Second Amendment rally and the media, how could you think that they weren't in some ways really rooting for there to be violence? Do, do, we, do we believe that there are any members of the mainstream media who, if there had been violence, on Martin Luther King Day at the Virginia State Capitol from the thousands of people assembled, many of whom had guns. I saw a whole lot of uh, uh, semi-automatic rifles being open carried by people in compliance with law there. If there had been any violence, the media would have absolutely loved the ability to blame it on Trump, to blame it on white nationalists. Also, I thought it was so interesting. You'll see a lot of people in the media who will just dismiss a group for being, if there are too many white people at an event now, it has become somehow a point of criticism. So, so now whiteness, according to the left-wing media, is inherently a cause for concern. And I just mean, it doesn't have to be entirely, but just there are too many white people. That's now a concern. This does not exist with any other racial group in America. You can get any other group of people together if they have an issue that they care about and there being too many of them together is not considered a problem. But whiteness is a problem. Too many white people. White nationalists. Well, they're not white nationalists. They're people that are just gathered there because, I mean, they've got a guy who dressed in Klan robes and blackface. We're not sure which one. As the governor, who's a Democrat. they got a guy below him accused by two women of sexual assault. Oh, what happened to me too? And a guy below him, Mark Herring, who was also not sure if he ever wore blackface after saying the guy at the top, Northam, should have stepped down because he had a photo of him in blackface or a Klan robe. We're not sure which one. He's not sure which one. These Democrats for your friends. Absurd, right? They're so worried about all these, all these, these racist white people getting together. But there were also, I saw the photos, I saw the videos, I had a lot of friends covering this, a lot of minorities there. In fact, the history of gun control and, and liberals absolutely hate this and they just ignore it. They pretend it's not there. The history of real gun control efforts in America 
where they're trying to take the guns out of people's hands. You're not law as a as a citizen. You're not lawfully allowed to arm yourself. Was very much pushed by Democrats in Reconstruction era in the Reconstruction era South who did not want black Americans to be able to defend themselves against, for example, the Klan. So they did not want them to be able to arm themselves. We want all Americans to be armed. We want our fellow uh, black Americans to arm themselves who are lawful citizens. We want Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans. We want everyone to be able to be armed because an armed citizenry is a reminder to the state not to transgress too far because there is, in fact, a bulwark against tyranny. We can fight back if we need to. And when you hear people who are involved in the, in the political process laughing and joking about guillotines and gulags, people who are working for socialists, who are doing very well, by the way, in getting enough very foolish and unwise Americans to support them, we're really supposed to believe that they would not try to control us. They would not never underestimate government's power to destroy and be unrepentant about it. Governments always have an excuse. You see, no one's responsible. It's the accumulation of power without really any individual responsibility necessarily. Governments will do things that individuals would never be able to bring themselves to do. The collective is usually so much more dangerous than the individual, and for those who are saying, well, what about individuals who become despots, who become totalitarians? Right. They always leverage the collective. The way they trample on individual rights is saying, I represent me, I represent, I embody everyone. And their will is evidenced or is put through me. You, the individual that I have to make disappear from his home in the middle of the night, that I have to disarm so that I can more easily make him disappear in the middle of the night. You don't count because I represent the collective. I am the collective. It's a dangerous word. You should be concerned when any, whenever somebody wants to tell you that um, they themselves can interpret and can then therefore wield the will of the people. Here's uh, MSNBC's Chris Hayes, who looks like somebody who reads a lot of books, but says a lot of really stupid things. But all you have to do is look. If you look like a wonk, liberals inherently think you're smarter. This is kind of like I get mad at Americans. They're like, oh, I've got a British accent. Well, actually, you've got to have a fancier accent if you're going to think you're really smart. No, having a British accent doesn't make you smart. Looking like a nerd with glasses doesn't make you smart. People need to stop with this stuff. But here's, here's Chris Hayes, who says stupid things on TV all the time. And I, I heard he used to be a nice guy. I've heard he's gotten really full of himself, actually. It's not surprising, you know, because the libs have elevated him. And I'm like, who is this guy? Reminds me of every annoying left-wing nerd I went to college with who thought that they had great arguments and never had to really argue with anybody. Their arguments were garbage. Here's 14. But the inescapable fact of this kind of event is that, yes, it's peaceful protest. It's First Amendment protected speech. But the implicit and explicit message of a bunch of heavily armed people marching on the state's capital is this. Don't you dare enact your policies. If you do, we will use these guns against you. Oh, it's a threat of force. Here's the problem. Every firearm in this country in private hands of a citizen is a reminder. It's a, it's a little personal rebellion against the government's ability to just come in and force you and your family to do what they want. It is a reminder that you do have, as a citizen, an alternative option, and that if they were going to violate your rights in a way that you would have to think about using that option against the state, 
there would much there there would very likely be the violation of many more people's rights. That is the check. That is the check on tyranny. The Second Amendment exists for. Liberals reject this. Liberals reject this. It makes them it makes them uneasy that there are people out there who do not just accept that whatever whatever the big S state tells them to do, they must comply with. No. No, there are limitations. There are things that there are laws that could be passed. Uh, you know, what, what if they passed a, a, a forced sterilization and, and forced abortion law in this country because of overpopulation, because of climate change? If someone came into your if, if agents of the state were sent to your home to tell you, sorry, you have to we're, we're going to sterilize you or perhaps your children because too many too much population. We got to save the world. Right. Listen to the crazy crap they say about climate change. We're going to get into that in a little bit. Would you let those agents of the state do that? They've done this in China for decades. This isn't just something that I've concocted out of nowhere. There's no, there's a limit. There is a place at which tyranny crosses the threshold. There is a place at which the state is no longer able to safely and without reprisal trample on your rights. This is central for many of us to what it actually means to be a free citizen of the United States of America. That, ba- that idea is very basic. It is very central. Democrats who think, and they are socialists, who think now that they should have control of every aspect of your life, that nothing is beyond the whims of the majority wielded by Nancy Pelosi. And if they get the Senate, Chuck Schumer and some Democrat in the White House, that there's nothing that you can count on as a right that is inviolate. There's nothing that they will not be able to do if they choose to do so. They like that. They are petty totalitarians, and if you let them, they'll just be outright totalitarians. This is why they hate the Second Amendment rally so very much, because it does remind people of something, that just because you have the votes does not mean you have the right. And if you try to do something that is not right, in a free society with an armed citizenry, the state can find out the hard way that they have gone too far. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I do not support in any way, shape, or form Governor Northam's and the Democrats' gun control. What I also don't support is the fact that every news piece you've seen on this this weekend, they've always brought up the issue of race, as though it's nothing but white rednecks and hillbillies out here who care for the Second Amendment. When actually... Black Americans, Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, Americans in general care about the Second Amendment. I work at a gun store part-time, and I can't tell you the number of customers I see of all races, all colors, all creeds, who care about the Second Amendment and who just want to peaceably live their lives, enjoy their rights, and the Second Amendment. So that's why I'm out here. And main, big media, mainstream media be damned. If you take a good look at me, you can see I'm a black American. And all I'm out here for is to enjoy my Second Amendment rights. An excellent explanation of why that particular patriotic American was at that rally. There were minorities in attendance in support of the rally. They were welcomed with open arms by their fellow Americans because their fellow Americans recognize that the Second Amendment is not about race. The Second Amendment is about individual dignity, the right to defend one's 
one's home, one's family, and yes, the right to defend against tyranny, which every human being deserves and should have. Governments go tyrannical. This isn't just something that's theoretical. You know, we, we always are told by the libs to pretend like, you know, history has only been around for 20 or 30 years. Yeah, you know, no big deal. Yeah? How long ago was it that the Soviet Union enforced a near half of the globe in some kind of communist tyranny? I mean, how long ago was it that we've had rebel- I mean, Look at Venezuela today. Look at North Korea. I mean, there are tyrannical regimes uh, scattered around the world still. What do you think can prevent? Oh, America's too sophisticated. America's too, too wealthy in order to go tyrannical. Well, what about uh, Germany in the 1930s, my friends? A, an industrial superpower, probably the, the third, um, in, in, you know, the third greatest industrial output at that period of any country in the world, just behind the United States, the United Kingdom. I think it actually very quickly exceeded the UK's production and certain areas. But if you look at even just steel output, for example, it was America, Britain, then Germany. And Germany went utterly tyrannical and it happened very rapidly. So, and then everybody, look at the Soviet Union and the First World War and the Russian Revolution. Uh, these things can happen quickly. And if you think that there won't be enough ideologically brainwashed officers of the state who will enforce will even enforce the will of the quote collective even if it is in violation of what we should all understand are basic moral truths you're mistaken historically there will be people who are willing to do that they'll be scared they'll be doing it for their own self-interest there'll be a variety of reasons for it but they will do it and so that is why that second amendment rally is so important and then there's just also on the policy level i know i'm getting into the underlying second amendment philosophy but on the policy level all the stuff they're talking about doing is just going to harass people that don't break any laws and don't hurt anybody. I mean, if they're serious about gun violence, which they always claim they are, you're going to go after assault rifles? Assault rifles are less than 1% nationally of homicides every year. So what, what should you really be going? You should be going after handguns. And what, uh, what is the primary area of society where handguns are used for violent crimes? Of course, drug deals. And a lot of it is drug and gang activity. That's, that's where you have most of the homicides occurring across the country. It's why you have these places like Baltimore and Chicago and uh, Philadelphia where there's a lot of gun violence still. New Orleans. And a lot of it revolves around the, the drug trade. But that, that's not what they're doing. They want to harass people. This is a way for Northam and the libs in the Virginia state legislature to just stick their fingers in the eyes of people that have never broken any law. Does anyone really think that they're, they're in danger because their law-abiding neighbor, Phil or Bob or Bill or Tony or Jamal or, you know, Diego or whoever, their law-abiding neighbor has an AR-15? They're scared because of that? Law-abiding gunners, I mean, concealed carry permit holders, for example, are more law-abiding on a per capita basis than law enforcement. That's something my law enforcement friends don't like that statistic, but it's true. But yeah, let's just pass a bunch of laws to turn them into felons, by the way. Felons, you know, people that get incarcerated. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. But to embrace the possibilities of tomorrow, we must reject the perennial prophets of doom and their predictions of the apocalypse.
They are the heirs of yesterday's foolish fortune tellers, and I have them, and you have them, and we all have them. And they want to see us do badly, but we don't let that happen. They predicted an overpopulation crisis in the 1960s, mass starvation in the 70s, and an end of oil in the 1990s. These alarmists always demand the same thing, absolute power to dominate, transform, and control every aspect of our lives. We will never let radical socialists destroy our economy, wreck our country, or eradicate our liberty. America will always be the proud, strong, and unyielding bastion of freedom. In America, we understand what the pessimists refuse to see that a growing and vibrant market economy focused on the future lifts the human spirit and excites creativity strong enough to overcome any challenge, any challenge by far. Have you ever heard a Republican president speak the way that Trump does about the left? I've been through a couple of Republican presidents in my lifetime. I don't remember anyone who would say things like, these are radical socialists who want to control every aspect of your life. That is what they want to do. Trump gets it. He's right. And he speaks about it the way that he should because it's reality. And on climate, I mean, this is the, this is the place now where I, I just cannot, uh, I cannot I mean, I'm trying to think whether I have to take them seriously because they're crazy and they're dangerous. Their ideas are wrong and dangerous. But I think that they are worthy of ridicule. These people that believe the world's going to end in eight years unless we do this, that, the other thing. They're worthy of ridicule. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Unless we do what? Oh, there's this great article by uh, Walter Russell Mead over at the Council on Foreign Relations, the Wall Street Journal, all aboard the crazy train. It's about Davos. Just a quick step back for a second. You know, Davos is this gathering of the the global elite. The Queen of England, the Bilderberg, the Illuminati, Buck Sexton come out of CFR and CIA. Google it. Um, but the Davos set is uh, this group that gets together. It's world leaders, celebrities, you know, social entrepreneurs, whatever the heck that means. Billionaires, fancy, fancy, fancy people. That's what Davos is. And it's a little little town nestled up in the mountains of Switzerland. That was for you, Producer Mark. And this is where they get together to discuss a couple of things, global poverty and global climate change. But really, global climate change has become the big thing. To give you an idea of the intellectual seriousness, this is what Walter Russell Mead points out, the intellectual seriousness of this Davos conference, where a renting a one-bedroom uh, one-bedroom apartment in a certain part of town in Davos, a small town, can go for $5,000 a night, all right? It's a very, very expensive proposition to go to this this conference. Uh, and I think, I forget what the fee, I think the fee is like fifteen dollars or $30,000 a person or something. I mean, it's very expensive. But uh, when you arrive this year, everyone is being told that at the conference, they are not distributing paper maps of the town of Davos because of climate change. I'm not making this up. Wow. That's really going to show the climate change gods. No paper maps, folks. This, this is what this is what we are supposed to take as what we should, the kind of mentality we should all embrace about this issue. 
Um, and this is absurd. People, I don't know how anyone could say this with a straight face. Think about how much trash you throw out of your apartment or your house in any given week. You think that them giving out, what would it be, uh, a, a few hundred, a few thousand pieces of paper? Producer Mark prints that out probably in, in a week here in the Freedom Hut, just giving me all the different, you know, cut sheets and live reads and things we have. This is absurd. Maybe not quite that much, but that's because he's very environmentally conscious. So w- when do we get to just recognize this for what it is, for it being foolish? I mean, this this is not... This is not a serious ideology. They take it very seriously, but it can only be believed in by unserious people. And they think they're so smart. They think I'm crazy. They're the ones worried. They're the ones that have set projections for the world being put on a path to extinction unless we do things that I guarantee you we are not going to do. The world is not going to do the things that I, I promise you. I, 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 need, I need to place a bet on this. Oh, I've got an idea where I can do it. It's not going to happen. But the people that believe that unless we do the thing that I guarantee you we are not going to do, the human species is on a glide path to extinction. Those people think I'm crazy and you're crazy. And I think science is on their side. Oh, wow. Science, huh? They also think that we should be lectured on this issue by a, I think now, 16-year-old girl. I, I guess so when she's 18, then we can really criticize her, right? That's, I guess, the rule. But when you're 16, if you're a global icon for a political movement being used as a human shield against criticism for adults too stupid and cowardly to make the case themselves, uh, then, then you're, you're not supposed to be criticized if you're 16. Um, here is uh, Ms. Greta Thunberg. I'm not child bashing here. Okay, the Daily Beast and those other idiot publications can say that all the much child bashing. We're going to hear from her and we're going to discuss the ideas she's putting forward. Play 18. You know, we've talked a lot about um, the inspiration and hope you're bringing to others. But obviously, there's a a flip side to that. And and, uh, what can we all learn from all of you about how you deal with the haters? Uh, I would like to say something that is that I think people need to know more than how I deal with haters. Um, so, in chapter 2 on page 108 in the SR 1.5 IPCC report, they came out in 2018, it says that if we are to have a 67% chance of limiting the global average temperature rise to below 1.5 degrees Celsius, we had on January 1st, 2018, about 420 gigatons of CO2 left to emit in that budget. With today's emissions levels, that remaining budget is gone within less than eight years. These numbers aren't anyone's opinions or political views. This is the current best available science. Though many scientists suggest these figures are too moderate, these are the ones that have been accepted through the IPCC. I know you don't want to report about this. I know you don't want to talk about this. But I assure you, I will continue to repeat these numbers until you do. Well, we're reporting on it right now, so guess what? <laughs> She's at Davos. That's why I brought up Davos before. Lecturing the world on this issue. And this is where you don't have to be a scientist to understand that this is, this is preposterous. Preposterous. Oh, I'm sorry. There's only a 67% chance. 
a 67% chance that, you know, the 420 gigatons of CO2, blah, blah. Really? Not, not, a, not a 70% chance? Not a 62% chance. A 67% chance, according to the IPCC, that if we want to avoid a one point whatever degree rate. This is all made up nothing. They don't know. They can't predict this. The numbers are, they're just pulling this stuff together. They, they put garbage into the models and they get garbage out of the models for predicting climate. They don't know. I mean, a weatherman cannot predict the weather accurately 10 days in advance. But they're going to tell you what the global climate temperature is going to be. Average climate, uh, average temperature reading, rather. This is this is you know the best the best available science today. It's because it's not science. Science is not about prediction. Science is about fact, and the ability to repeat to repeat results through experimentation using the scientific method. It's not a, science is not about prediction. This is this is a this is all crap. It is all nonsense. And here's the other part of this that they just don't know how to deal with. And like I said, we're not we're not this 420 you know gigatons of CO2. We have eight years. I mean, you know, God willing, I'll still be on the air. Producer Mark will be here. Uh, we'll be on the air in eight years, and I'll be able to tell you. I I guarantee you. I would bet. I would bet every dollar I have if there were a way to do this. That we are not going to meet this, this eight-year standard that they, you know, of reduction in order. No way, no way. And yet, we're told if we don't meet that, we're going to be past the point of no return. We're being told this by a sixteen-year-old with no no background in science whatsoever. We're being told this by a human being who, in, in a normal circumstance, would still be told by her parents when to go to bed and when she could leave her room if she's, you know, been naughty or something. You know, she could be grounded. That's who's telling them. And that's who the media is like, please tell us more about this. And yeah, I mean, yeah, is, is it a little humorless when an interviewer is asking you a question, trying to get to know you, and you're just going to, like, read off the IPCC report again? But this is, this is what this girl is being trained to do. She is being trained to do this. So that idiot libs in places like California, where I just was, can have someone championing, you know, getting all this attention from the media and cannot be assailed because ultimately there's a deep intellectual insecurity that people who believe this stuff must have because they can't, they can't actually have this debate. They can't actually sit down with somebody and look at the look in the eye and say, yeah, unless we do these things, the world, we're going to be on an extinction path. No more human beings. What? Within a, by the way, when? Within 100 years? Within 50 years? 200 years? 500 years? Come on, this is the best available science, right? 67% chance they're telling us about. They don't know. Of course they don't. We know they don't know. Here's another problem. This is where the, the Davos set really has no answers for you. China's building a coal-fired power plant every week on average. The new CO2 emissions globally for the last... Certainly in the last decade, I think it's the last 20 years, 60% of it is due to China. You add India in there, and India and China are the countries responsible for the most CO2 emissions by far. And do you think that they're going to... And, and China, by the way, is in the Paris Accord. China's like, yeah, sure, we'll do that. <laughs> yeah, right. Sure, though. We like the good press. Yeah, we'll sign up for that thing that no one's going to enforce. 
but oh, Trump is evil for leaving the. I mean, if you think the Paris Accords were were important, you're just not very smart. You're just not very smart. I, I, I don't care. They can show me all the degrees in the world and oh, look at this. And, you know, I got a 800 on my SAT math or whatever. I mean, I don't care. They're just not very smart. They're not able to have the synapses in the brain fire in such a way that they can come up with a very obvious but important conclusion here that this fear mongering is laughable. That they're wrong. They're wrong. I'm right. They're wrong. Again. But, oh, you turn on all the journalists. I remember at CNN, I, once or twice, I got to discuss something about climate change. <gasps> you, you don't believe in you don't believe in climate change? Ever get so huffy. You don't believe in climate change? What does that even mean? You know, the climate changes all the time. I'm not worried about it. I, I have my level of anxiety. And I'm somebody who, you know, I, I do want to I do want to have kids. I do want a good future for all of humanity, believe it or not. Uh, the level of anxiety I have about climate is zero. But that's why also I think the people that really worry about this, unfortunately, it's a it's a psychological disorder. This is not this is not the result of of people who are thinking logically and soundly about things. I, I do think it's a mass hysteria. It's a mass delusion. And there should be much better studies done of this. I, I start to think that there is a, a kind of psychological contagion that can occur. We know it can happen in totalitarian societies, um, but I, I'm starting to think that this happens within the bubble of liberalism or leftism. I don't like calling them liberals, uh, where people can finally, uh, people have finally reached this conclusion that we're all going to die unless we give the government the power, the government that can't, that is inept, invariably inept in what it does. Um, but the government should have the power to d- declare, to do anything it wants in your life in order to save the world. And we're all the governments of the world that are come together. I mean, Davos is a joke, by the way, folks. He's a laughing stock. These are just people that are desperate to feel important and cool. That's what Davos is. Does nothing of any value. But people still go. Globalized. It is virtue signaling for globalists in private jets. And at least they get to go on a fancy trip. The rest of us just get to get lectured about climate change that no one's going to do. Oh, that's right. They all took private jets to get to Davos, by the way. They, they care so much about the climate. So they're using more CO2 in one day than you will use probably in a year. But they're the good people. You see, they're the messengers of the movement. These people are people are just just absurd. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I think what's at the heart of it is who you ask to be a judge, who you want on your list to be a judge. And I'll tell you what the answer's been for Donald Trump, because I've seen this, guys. Homophobic, that's in. Racist, that's in. Um, uh, Sexist, oh yeah, most definitely. And anti-voter. That's been a big qualification. He has named one person after another who, and I don't mean we have kind of a a sense that that's who those people are. I mean, look at their written records. Look at the activities they've already engaged in. Look at the fights they've been in and which side they were on. I like that Elizabeth Warren was described in the New York Times endorsement of her, but also Klobuchar. As a gifted storyteller. <laughs> a gifted storyteller, that's right. It's a fake Native American. He's gifted at telling that story for about 50 years. Good job. Oh, it's just just remarkable. What a good, good. She can just spin a great yarn, you know, just, just tell the tale. Oh, man. 
I also have to say I love the uh, the Babylon B, which has done some. The Babylon B is great. I, I'm really impressed. They they had this one of their tweets was that was this Elizabeth Warren quote Bernie Sanders once told me in private that the Princess Bride is a garbage movie and those who enjoy it are human trash. This, of course, a reference to the private conversation she had about whether with Bernie Sanders, about whether or not a woman could be president, which then she made public in an effort to take him down, which I think is 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 gross. Of course, people who love Warren will somehow defend this. But I I think it is quite gross that she did that. And uh, I also think I just think it's but Princess Bride. It's not a garbage movie, but I do not think now people are getting mad at me. I, I think it's great when you're a kid. It's a great thing to watch when you're a kid homesick from school. It's not like a movie as an adult that I'm in a rush to watch ever. I mean, it, it's, it gets a little, it's a, you know, some of the effect. I don't know. People are very nostalgic about it. All right, all right, fine. But you're certainly not a guard. I like it. Just, just saying. Just saying. Oh, but Hillary came out. Hello? Hillary came out recently. She's got this documentary that's all about how amazing Hillary is and how wonderful and warm and brilliant and fantastic she's on Hulu. You know, these platforms, now they're dominated by libs. Again, Republican billionaires, where are you? I'll start it. I'll start a conservative-based entertainment platform tomorrow. We will start making good movies, good shows, things about, you know, stories that people care about, where there are good guys and bad guys, and there's drama, and there's real, you know, it's not all just going to be like elevating Democrats and, you know, making everybody bend the knee to the trans rights agenda. I mean, this is what you see in all the all the latest entertainment that comes out. Whenever there's anything political, it's always left-wing politics, as you know. But they got this Hulu documentary, and Hillary says, I'm trying to find the quote. It was pretty amazing, but it was basically, nobody likes Bernie Sanders. He was in Congress for years. He had one senator to support him. Nobody likes him. Nobody wants, wants to work with him. He got nothing done. Ouch. Hillary. What happened? Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Stuff to sort of close the show out with today. First, producer Mark, scale of one to ten, how much did you miss your favorite radio host? It's very important that everyone knows. I haven't listened to Howard in a while. That's cold. It's cold. <laughs> it's, it's rough, dude. He what is he making? Like a hundred million a year? He doesn't. He, he does doesn't like need three shows love. a week now. Yeah. Oh man, can I get on? Can I get on the hundred million dollars a year slash three shows a week? That'd plan? be can great. We, can we make, yeah, you'd be down for. Once you get really old, that's what you do. Oh man, three shows a week. Yeah. Uh, that'd be great. But these guys, you know, he's 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 gonna be doing radio for the next twenty years. These guys never want to retire. He's gonna be like Larry King. Hey, I'm coming back. I was surprised when he said he wanted to retire. Soon. Larry mm-hmm. King. He's on like Oracle or whatever. He's like, hey, See? yeah, he's on like Aura or TV, Oracle TV. There he is, Larry. I don't know. He's never gonna give up. Mm. You know. Well, I did watch uh, Ghostbusters recently, and I figured Larry King makes an appearance there. Does he? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does. Uh, it's a great movie. So, what else? Oh, yeah, California, by the way. California was, was actually kind of cold. I was a little sad about that. Yeah, it was. Like it was. In the 60s. It was not really. Wait, were you there, too? Yeah, it was in San Francisco. We went Oh, it was this. colder for you. So, yeah. okay. So, this is what I want to ask you about. Yeah. I, now I remember. Um, did you, you know how there's this whole thing with conservative, about how these places, the California is being ruined? Sure. 
um, which I will say, I, I have a couple of anecdotes about that, but I want to hear, did you see any of the mess in San Francisco or do you just stay away from it? I mean, I saw some homeless people here and there. I did. The only thing that like bothered me about San Francisco, besides the hills and walking around, that that is absolutely awful. I don't know how people walk up and down those hills. That That's awful. That's just geography. That has nothing to do with yeah. the liberals. Uh, but the garbage, like you can't, you can only have one bin of garbage or two bins of garbage per household. And if you have more than that, you have to wait and leave it in your house. And if you Ugh. get fined, if you put too much garbage out, like that, that was just weird to me. Ugh. Yeah. That's gross. So I will tell you couple of things first is that when i was in la i spoke to a lot I, I have a bunch of friends who are la natives and they said that they're hearing now more than ever before from lifelong los angelinos that they're thinking about leaving the state that it's actually it's actually become too much the traffic has gotten so bad the taxes are so high and the dysfunction so consistent so present around everyone the people who are lifelong californians like i'm out so that was interesting because you're starting to, and, and there is this big outflow of people who are leaving. The problem is, of course, not everyone can leave, right? If you own a home there and they might raise taxes a bunch on properties there, which makes it really hard to sell your home. I mean, if you got a, let's say you got a 200, I mean, just to make it easy, $200,000 home, which in California would get you a cardboard a, box. Yeah, a cardboard box to live in. But let's say you had a, a $200,000, or in Los Angeles, at least, a $200,000 home and and you, you know, the taxes on that are going to get jacked up. So, you know, the taxes are 10 or 15 grand a year. I mean, that really, hurts the value of your home yes. dramatically, right? So, I mean, that's obviously a, a rough approximation of what, but there's a concern that that's what's going to happen. So now people who want to leave can't leave. And then you just get stuck rent. See, the problem with property taxes is you're really renting your home from the government. Even if you have no mortgage, you don't own your home. You're renting it from the government. You're not allowed to own that property without giving money to the government every year. So that's a big problem. The other thing, and this is, I, I got to tell everybody this. I don't know what to say. I, I did Fox at a Tucker show on Friday and- uh, I, we were sort of, po- we were, you know, I was in a uh, suburban, you know, as one does, and and I'm driving along and we stop at a red light in an area where there's, it's like a, you know, mini mall or whatever, you know, it's one of those malls. Sure. I'm from New York City. I don't know what you call these things. You know, a strip mall. Yes. It's kind of like a strip mall, but there are people milling about walking around. Shopping center. Yeah. The shopping center area. So there's some people walking around and and it's not a, not a, like a particularly dodgy part of town. And by the way, just. Just safety warning for everybody. What I'm going to tell you, for those of you who are eating, you may want to just turn on the volume for a second or whatever, because I, but I, I do need to share this. Um, I would drive along, and there's a guy who is near, like, I think he's near a tent that is probably the tent that he is now, you know, inhabiting. And he just goes up and stands and is making a lot of, he's sort of making a lot of noise. And again, content warning for everybody. And he, he, Drops trow right there in full view of like 30 people. And I'm just, the whole thing happens right there on the street with, you know, it's nighttime, but there were, you know, light, you could see everything, whatever. Sure. He just goes. And I'm like, I, I've seen that before. I have yeah, seen that I mean, before. You've ridden the New York City in, subway. In, yeah. No, no, no. It does not happen in New York City like that. I it see does the, not happen. The like other, that. oh, yeah. Number yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, no, that's different. Yeah. That's different. I've seen it in the third world. I've seen it. I've seen it in the the nastiest countries I've ever been to, and I've been to some very nasty ones. I've seen people do that where they just will go. This was in like Los Angeles, you know, near Century City or whatever. It was crazy, and nobody was even phased by it. So I got to tell you, just from a personal anecdote standpoint, all the stuff you're hearing about California, San Francisco, L.A., mm-hmm. ten cities, messy, all the stuff. Yup, it's real. I guess I didn't go to the right parts of San Francisco. Uh, or you did go to the right parts oh. of San Francisco. 
Uh, and then I got one other thing for you. Are you a UFC person? Is that a part of your... I mean, I'll watch the big fights. Did you? I mean, this was an easy one to watch because it lasted forty seconds. I saw the forty-two seconds. I was gonna say I saw the highlights. I watched the fight on Twitter. Yeah. After the fact, I also think it's funny. I mean, people. I know that I'm gonna get yelled at by some UFC watchers for this, but I think it's interesting when I hear people do the analysis of UFC. I'm like, yeah. I know when someone's gotten hit hard too. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, "Oh man, you know what really, you know what really set him up for the knockout there was that like right cross to the face and then the knee like into his temple." I'm like, "Yeah, I I know." Yeah. I I, I don't I'm he, not he a He beat the crap out of him. Yeah, like, he yeah. beat him up really badly. Uh, and that is how he got the knockout. Uh, it's kind of kind of an interesting way to look at it. Um, but uh, you had Conor McGregor who was the victor tweet out phenomenal president, quite possibly the USA Greatest of all time. He put a goat symbol in there, which I sure. just, because I'm cool, I know that that means greatest of all time. I'm glad. Thank you. Most certainly one of them anyway, as he sits atop the shoulders of many amazing giants that came before him. No easy feat. Early stages of term, also incredible. Congrats and happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day, America. Conor McGregor. Are they going to try to cancel Conor now? He says Trump is one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest of all time. I mean, I think everyone kind of knows, and this isn't saying, this is nothing derogatory against Trump, but Connor's kind of out there. Not that only out there people would, you know, vote for Trump. I'm not trying to say that. Why you got to pick on the Irish guy? I, I wasn't, but you know Connor's out there. So like he? anything he says, everything just goes ever, over everyone's head. I mean, didn't he make $100 million for fight, fighting Floyd Mayweather? Yes, or something? which that was a, eh, it wasn't that great of a fight. It wasn't very no. good. No. The I whole time I was like, it. throw a knee. Yeah. Spin kicks. I would kick. like to see them UFC. Yes. I don't want to see the box. Oh, uh, Conor McGregor. I think Conor McGregor would, but, would, would, would completely like just crush him in a UFC yeah. style fight, but it was not good for him in the no. boxing match. But my point is, because he's a little out there, nobody cares what he says. Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine that if you would pay like. I mean, front row seats. I'm sure at a UFC event like that, crazy amounts of thousands of yeah. dollars, right? I mean, I mean, that's not the only card. Obviously, you're gonna get five or six fights, right? But, but the big fight is the, the big fights count. It lasts forty seconds, yeah. And it wasn't even like, it wasn't even like the end of like a Bruce Lee movie where he finishes off the main bad guy with like a giant like yeah, like kick in the face or yeah. something. You know, it was kind of like. You know, hit him with the shoulder a couple of times. He did have one high kick that he sort of blocked a little bit. You could tell connected. And then the guy just sort of stumbled and fell to the ground yeah. and was getting punched in the face. Would you pay money to see a UFC fight? Like, I feel like on Because TV I know that I love Team Buck and so many of them love UFC, yes, of course I would pay money no, to see No, I'm a talking UFC about fight. in person or on television. Because I feel like in person you don't see much. You say you go into Madison Square Garden, they have fights there. I, You're in the top row. You're not seeing a thing. I'm going to tell you something. I, I, back in the day with a bunch of friends, I forget even what it was called, but it wasn't called UFC. It was pre-UFC. Yeah, there I was a different, there was like, you know, there were these early fighting leagues and they were trying to ban it. There was this whole argument around, you know, whether it was like, uh, uh, you know, too, too brutal. And, and I went to see, I forget what it was called, but it was a similar thing to UFC and I had some friends over, and we ordered it on pay-per-view. It was like $50. You know, this is back in the 90s. And it was the most boring thing I've ever seen in my life because it just turned into wrestling. Like, it turned into, like, Olympic-style wrestling sure. without actually Olympic wrestling. Which where you just have guys, like, yeah. like, essentially, it was all on the ground. It was all ground and pound. And it was just dudes, like, wrestling each other until one of them gets exhausted. And then he, like, hit him a couple times in the face, and the guy would tap out. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is the most boring thing I've ever seen in my life. That's why I don't think so. you can do that in UFC. Yeah, you no, no, now, that's yeah. right. They, they changed it because of that, but I saw it in the early days, and it was a really bad, pro like, what I saw was a really bad product. Yeah. So, you Olympic know. Olympic college-style wrestling, boring. I don't right. know how people watch that.
Yeah, I've never even tried. Although Foxcatcher is a very good movie. If you haven't seen, have you seen? I have Fox? not. You would like it. Okay. I'm gonna put that out there for you. Would like it. And Got Steve Carell, who oh Steve Carell is, is incredible. He plays the main guy. And if you you what you have to do is watch Foxcatcher, and then watch uh, on YouTube or something. Just watch the guy that he plays because there's video of him. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh my, he becomes him. It's it's crazy how well. He does this character who's a really weird, a billionaire, really weird guy from the from the Dupont family, and a Foxcatcher is a good movie. But yeah, so UFC thing happened. Um, California, I saw a guy do that thing that he did. I'm trying to think what else. Defecate. Oh, and I saw That's an I, I saw an iHeart concert. Oh, which one? Um, I saw Alter Ego. Ah, uh, wasn't yeah. Coldplay there? Yes. I'm so jealous. Yeah, Coldplay was great. Why and didn't you, know you uh, invite me? I mean, I only could get one ticket. <sighs> uh, Coldplay was great. You know, that's my favorite band. I did not know. Yeah. You like Coldplay? Love Coldplay. Did, did you not hear my first dance song at my wedding? It was uh, Yellow. I thought that was her choice. No, it was both of our choices. <laughs> yeah, you. yeah, really? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The range is hot today, producer Mark. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, Coldplay was great. Also, Billie Eilish. <sighs> Eilish, I've never I seen like before. A little weird, a little out there. It was interesting. I just don't like her music. I don't care what she looks like or anything. There like was that. a woman named Shade who performed, who actually has amazing vocals. I was very impressed just with her her, her vocal talent. Um, Blink-182. Ah. Well, they're, the stuff. They're a little old. I'll be honest. They're a little, a little like, old, so they're not good live anymore. Uh, it's just, it's like dudes who look like they're all, you know, dads in their like late 40s, early 50s who are still playing that kind of music. I mean, the Backstreet which, Boys are still performing. Yeah, it's a little, but it's a little bit like, you're a little like, eh, I don't know about this anymore. You know, it's not like classic rock. It's a little of like punk rock in that style, whatever you'd call Blink-182. You know, I don't know if it's called trend- emo music. Is not emo. Emo is yeah. Is it Green Day, Blink One Eighty Two? That's not emo. Yeah. You're, the, the audience is going to call you out on this. Panic of the emo. Disco, like all that. Well, Panic's yeah, I'm, different now. I'm throwing a flag. Emo is all like boy. emo is like uh, um, what, what's it? What's it called? Uh, you know, better than Ezra. No. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Emo's right, emo in my era. Was Green Day and the like. Right. Well, anyway, so I saw. I'm trying to think who else. Per- oh, I didn't. I, it was Black Keys was too late. I, and they're actually my favorite. And I was like, I'm too tired. It's past. It's like past 11:30. I you left go to bed. a concert. It was early? like it was past 11 p.m. So and I, I had enough. Were you taking tired. a red eye? Or also, something? why like, does everyone stand? We have seats. It was a seated venue. Why does everyone stand the whole time? Where were you in the venue? I was like in the back. Oh yeah, no, I'm not important. Oh, so you kind of have to stand. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, no, but everyone was standing. Everyone was standing. No, at a concert, you want to dance. No one was dancing. They're just standing. Oh, well, but they have seats. Yeah, sit in the seat. Don't stand in the seat. Very frustrating. So there was that. But uh, yeah, I was. I was. I I think I'm missing one or two. I'm just happy I heard that you said Coldplay was great. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, Lumineers were actually pretty good good too. too. But Coldplay was the best by far. Ah, Coldplay was. I I mean, just and I'm not. They're not even my favorite band. I like Black Keys a lot more personally. But in terms of a live performance, they were in a whole other. Like it was a whole other level from the other stuff, just what they did, the presentation, mm. the you know the song choice and everything else. So, um, yeah, they were they were very very good. And uh, oh, and now we'll actually do some roll call. Sorry. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Team, I promise we'll do it. We'll do a double session because I've been out for a few days and I've missed you all. So we'll do a double session of roll call tomorrow. Because I know we, producer uh, Mark and I got a little excited about talking about the things. So uh, let's get to your messages now, though, on Facebook. Brandon is first up. Welcome back, Brother Buck. Our shields are high in Virginia. 
Yesterday, I was at the VCDL Lobby Day in Richmond. It was amazing. We, a small group of about seven patriots, mostly with medical background than I, the only grunt of the group, showed up prepared for the worst with backpacks full of medical supplies. We left Richmond with all our equipment along with smiles on our faces and hope in our hearts. The mood of the event was of hope, friendship, brotherhood, and patriotism. I believe the reason the event was peaceful had little to do with Virginia's governor declaring a state of emergency and more to do with people like my beautiful bride who led over 50 people from all over the country to pray and fast for our protection. I accredit God and people like my bride for the peace and safety of yesterday's event. Thank you all. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against power and principalities. By the way, I shared your podcast with many patriots yesterday. Take care, brother. Airborne all the way. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for your note. Also, appreciate you very much uh, sharing my podcast. As I always say, that's the single most helpful thing. Any of you who want to see the Bucks Sexton show thrive, uh, telling a friend or 10 or 2 or 50 about it is the most helpful thing to say. They can listen to the iHeart app. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Um, Producer Mark is going to be in charge of putting up our YouTube channel soon, which is going to be up. So we're going to want you all to subscribe. It's not quite there. Are we? Are we? we, No, we're not quite ready to launch. Close. By next week, I think we'll be ready to launch on YouTube. So that is the plan. Um, And that way you'll be able to watch the show. The Pluto Pluto TV show we have, we will put um, uh, on YouTube as well. So that's the plan. You can check it out. And uh, please do subscribe to the podcast and then the YouTube channel. Brian writes, Buck, Ben did a great job filling in. I was wondering if you had plans to give him a slot on Pluto TV channel 248 the first. If you do, he should call the show Ben's Wind Garden, where the roses are always red and the analysis bears fruit. Womp, womp. I don't think, I don't think he's going to call it that. Right? Ben's Wind Garden? What do you think? No, I don't think so. But uh, I do appreciate your writing, and thank you. I'm glad that Ben did it. Ben's a buddy of mine. He's a great dude, very smart, good man. Um, so we always try to have the best host we can in here. Jesse, Buck Sexton, share this with your coworkers. But CNN stands for stands for Certified Nutty Network. Okay, Jesse. Thank you. <laughs> Daniel writes, Buck, enjoy your commentary and listeners. Uh, it doesn't change the message, but as a former USNR, I'd like to remind you that it was General Yamamoto. I'm sorry, Admiral Yamamoto, not General. My bad. Sorry about that. Uh, yes, yeah, still a valid target for U.S. Air Force P-38. Just finished the book Wounded Tiger. Uh, it's good. Okay. It's astonishing. True story. Showering our faith and change to follow Christ can have. Oh, no. Okay. Thank you so much, Daniel. Appreciate it, man. Thank you for writing in. Um, the story is about a captured Doolittle Raider, a missionary's daughter he never met, and others. Huh? Okay, interesting. I've never heard of that before. Let's see here. Steven! Buck, you were discussing the movie 1917 the other night. It sounds like a good movie. However, the real deal, literally, for movies about World War I is They Shall Not Grow Old, uh, which takes actual footage. I suggest you see it. Steven, I saw it. It is fantastic. You are correct. They Shall Not Grow Old. Um, by Peter Jackson is amazing. And if you care about the First World War, the history, and really what was going on, you absolutely should watch it. I watched it on a plane. It was great. Highly, highly recommend. Team, so good to be back. I won't be out for that many days again until after the election. So excited to be with you in this journey ahead. As always, shields high.